London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 48 is Jungian analyst and author, Dr. Dennis Merritt. He holds a master's degree in entomology from the University of Wisconsin and a PhD in insect pathology from the University of California, Berkeley. He later went on to study the field of psychology and earned a master's degree in humanistic psychology with a clinical focus from Sonoma State University, before heading to Switzerland, where he trained as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich. His thesis, Synchronicity Experiments with the I Ching and Their Relevance to the Theory of Evolution, sparked his deep interest in the use of the I Ching, on which he has lectured widely. Dr. Merritt is the author of the four-volume series, The Dairy Farmer's Guide to the Universe, which includes Jung and Ecopsychology, The Cry of Merlin, Hermes, Ecopsychology and Complexity Theory, and Land, Weather, Seasons, Insects. His impassioned articles on climate change, the Hunger Games, and guns in the American psyche are not to be missed and are available on his blog at jungianecopsychology.com. For the past 30 years, Dr. Merritt has participated in Lakota Sioux ceremonies, which have strongly influenced his worldview. Our interview was recorded on Friday, August 16, 2019, in person at the Hilton Milwaukee City Center in downtown Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Let's begin by discussing how you got into Jung and why you became a Jungian analyst. Okay. Um, well, I grew up on a small dairy farm in Wisconsin, uh, just south of Door County, which is a big tourist area. And this was in the 1950s, um, dead-end road, and my uh, father was bipolar and pretty depressed. He was bipolar. He okay. was bipolar and actually he was psychotic at times. Um, neither one of my parents went to high school and they were agnostic at best. Okay. Um, my mother had very interesting background. I'm from a part of Wisconsin that's mostly people of Czech Bohemian descent. Um, and the Bohemians in Wisconsin um, in the 1800s, I think there were over 60% of them were not churchgoers because the Catholic Church was slow to service their community. And my grandfather and several other farmers were upset. They had this little Bohemian Catholic Church and they claimed that uh, when the church set up the more provincial church in the, the nearby town, that they came and stole their statuary. So all these farmers dropped out and they set up the Bohemian Brotherhood. So they had their own ceremonies and rituals, and so my mother didn't have a, a church background. And my father was a migrant uh, worker, and his father was a moonshiner from Missouri, Arkansas. A moonshiner? A moonshiner, yep. Remember when my dad would have a couple of beers, he'd said, uh, you could ask anybody in Missouri who made the best moonshine. It was Bill Merritt. <laughs> so, Your grandfather? My grandfather. Okay. Big and story you said teller. he was... Bipolar, was he being treated for that? No, no, very sadly okay. not. No, it was. Uh, and in those days, really? Back in those weren't. days, if you went to see a psychiatrist, you were crazy. Okay. So it was a big, a big thing. Um, 
and uh, so he was untreated, and it was it was difficult as a as a boy not to have a like a strong father figure. So I never never was able to talk to my dad, um, and the only time I actually was able to talk to him was when I came home from Berkeley when I was in graduate school, and I. I got the Berkeley Fall of 67, and then things were pretty hot, uh, yeah. anti-war and everything right. at that time. So I found out basically everything that eventually came out about what was really happening in Vietnam. Uh, and I come home from Berkeley, and my dad would, we would argue the entire three weeks I would be home. Mm. And my mom would say, he's only home once a year, don't argue all the time. He said, I said we're, not, we're not arguing, we're discussing. Okay. So we had these deep discussions about the war. Uh, Annie would come down to, for three winters in a row, I uh, would say that's socialism, and my dad would say, no, that's communism. And uh, that's as far as we could get. And I just got so kind of upset after three winters, I, I didn't feel like going home for a while. Sure. It was really a civil war. Uh, but, so I, but my mom was uh, quite a smart young woman. Uh, and she, but she wasn't able to go to high school because her mom got sick when she okay. was supposed to go to high school. And they said girls just get married when they get out of high school anyway. But she would have been a great teacher and I realized I was her first pupil. Mm. I can still remember her teaching me how to cut a straight line with the scissors mm -hmm. and tie my shoes and she spent about three hours with my daughter when my daughter was about four years old showing her how to put together this rather complex 50-piece puzzle. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that was my uh, background. And uh, when I got to the seventh grade, the one-room country school closed, had the same teacher my mom did. And we went to the village school with one teacher for two classes. And I was just, I couldn't get to sleep. I was up till like three in the morning. Uh, and I asked my mom uh, what, uh, I told her the problem, and she, she gave me this book that had meant so much to me, to her. And it was this really well-used book on Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yeah. And I thought, oh my God, it doesn't help me, but it sure tells me a lot about my mom. So I started my search, and I thought maybe science would have the answer. So I read a lot of science. And science is actually fairly simple. The principles are fairly simple. Um, and I realized that's not the answer. That is true, isn't it? It's not the answer. It's, it's amazing. And for, for a young guy interested in sports cars and stuff, he said, wow, Porsche, that's, <laughs> that's an amazing piece of equipment. Uh, but that's only in a Jungian sense. That's only one domain. That's Apollo's domain. That's only one of 12 gods in our Western pantheon. Um, so then I read uh, the book that really hit me in seventh grade was The Rose Walden. And I was so taken by that because growing up on a farm, I had all the 4-H club projects. So I knew the names of all the trees, all the wildflowers, all the birds. And the last thing I took was entomology. And I thought, oh, my God, this is a fascinating world. So even on a dairy farm with a river, uh, going through the edge of your land in a lot of uh, uh, woodlots, there are insects everywhere. Mm -hmm. And they're just, mm -hmm. like Hillman said, it shows that God had a great imagination. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so, um, so I had to do a book report on what I wanted to do as an adult. And I thought, where could I live in the wilderness? So I said I wanted to be a trapper in Alaska. Okay. And my grade school teacher was really upset with me. He could see that I had the smarts to go to college. Right. And that was one of the first times I realized that it's like Jung, when he wrote that paper that he really was interested in and his instructor said he plagiarized it. Right. I, I thought, wow. This guy, this teacher really likes me. He'd known my mom. They kind of grow, when she was a kid, they kind of grown up uh, somewhat in proximity. And um, so, uh, and, and he doesn't uh, understand what I appreciate about Thoreau. Um, and then that still wasn't enough. And they had, we had people came, were coming around, I always try to convert my parents. And it was always so awkward. You know, these farmers would come over and talk to my parents about Jesus and so on. And my parents would tell me about the silly things the Christian did, you know. Oh, Henry let his ice cream melt down last night so he could drink it through a straw so he'd still be fasting. And Clayton didn't go to his son's wedding because they're Catholic and he married a Lutheran girl. And I thought, boy, this Christianity is pretty screwed up. But then I read a classics illustrated comic book on the life of Jesus. And I thought, holy cow, a Sermon on the Mount. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. And blessed are the poor. And I was hungering, did you feed me? And uh, all that sort of stuff. And uh, so I started secretly reading the Bible, oh. and it took me a year to get up the courage to ask my parents if I'd go to church. Um, and once I started going, it was a Missouri Synod church, which is pretty conservative. But that, there was from, a, from the beginning a conflict between Science Missouri Synod then, and I think still largely now, a six-day creation. Uh, and as a scientist, I thought, no, this can't be. so. So here was science, here was a religion, and I just had to live with it. Um, but years later, when I eventually discovered Jung, when I was near finishing my PhD in insect pathology in Berkeley, um, I realized that here's a way with Jungian psychology to integrate religion and science, and to talk about all the religions of the world having a valid uh, way of experiencing the spiritual dimension. So the way I summarize it is, is I can say, I've got the best dog in the world. And you, Laura, can say, you've got the best dog in the world. And we're both right. Right. You know? Um, so there's something about Jungian psychology, I think is, to me, it, has, um, it is a good framework for the paradigm shift. It was Jung who coined the terms New Age and Age of Aquarius is in 1940. Right? Is that right? He, he just went so deeply into the psyche, he had his retreat on Lower Lake Zurich. Uh, Deidre Baer, in her wonderful biography of Jung, said later in his life he may have spent up to half his time there. He, no running water, no electricity, something he designed. It was like his uh, soul in an architectural form, uh, built at four significant periods in his life, the last one after his wife and Tony Wolf had died. And you're talking about Bollingen, In right? Bollingen, right. Um, and he would get there, 
And he would spend up to three days just clearing his mind, just staring at the water, chopping wood or whatever. And he would just think very deeply. And back in 1940, he realized there had to be a paradigm shift in the West. And in 1940, he called it a new age, an age of Aquarius. And to me, as a Jungian scientist, somebody interested in Christianity, Native American spirituality, and the environment, um, I, as an analyst, that's what I've been focusing on. We have to think in terms of a paradigm shift. And it seems obvious to me that it has to be a system that is psychological. That's even the Dalai Lama realized that's a great contribution of the West, psychology. Yes. We've actually scientifically studied the psyche. We've come up in especially in a Jungian way of getting into some of those same dimensions that these great meditators and also great shamans um, have gotten into. Um, but um, then how do you so you have to have a paradigm that has, uh, can address religion in the spiritual dimension, can address science in the Apollonic realm, and particularly now, our Western split from the environment. Yeah. Um, and when I looked at Jung, and amazingly, it wasn't until I was near finishing writing the Dairy Farmer's Guide to the Universe that I realized, duh, I don't call it an aha moment, I call it a duh moment. Okay. Um, that's probably one of the reasons I got so taken by Jung when I started reading him, because it's very ecological, totally the opposite of Freud. Freud talked about the ego and it's always being threatened by the unconscious, so it's anxious about that realm, the polymorphous, sexually perverse child and so on, and then the superego. And for Jung, what the alchemical model is, no. That's the source of the gods and the goddesses, the myths and the religions, and so on. And you're lucky if you have a religious framework, an archetypal framework for the spiritual dimension. If you're not, you've got to personally go back to the source on your individual journey that he called individuation. So, um, so there's also a way with that journey that you can link Jungian psychology to the indigenous cultures. Because when you go on that journey, Jung said when you get to those deep levels of the psyche, you get down to the animal ancestors. And that's where the, all the Native Americans, that's where they get their spirit animals mm -hmm. and their vision quests uh, and their vision quest. And that is like if your soul looked like an animal, it would look like this. And for me, I had a big dream when I was finishing Zurich of had many big dreams when I was finishing Zurich. It's very much a, um, an initiation to go through a, a analytic training. And uh, one of my many big dreams was like a typical Wisconsin meadow or pasture scene. And it was, um, it was um, a hay field, probably Timothy or alfalfa. And of course, being an entomologist, there were some insects flying above the field. And it was a gently rolling topography and some trees on the horizon. Beautiful summer day, uh, blue sky, puffy white clouds. And that was it. Just a simple Wisconsin meadow scene. But it was the most beautiful scene I'd ever seen. And I've been in the Swiss Alps and Oregon coast, Canadian Rockies, um, been in the Amazon rainforest. 
I've never seen anything as beautiful as that. So I think that's as sacred an image as a psyche can produce. So in a Jungian sense, the way you deal with that, that's your big dream. And the way you work with it is that you use that like it's a powerful magnet and you want it to influence your thoughts, your feelings, your concepts as if they were iron filings. So that's a foundational image for your essence. Uh, and then your challenge is to go out and immerse yourself in that environment. So I have found two places in Wisconsin where that happens. I go back and forth. I live in Milwaukee now, and I go back to the clinic I started out in when I finished up in Zurich Integral Psychology Center in Madison. Very interesting uh, place with a spiritual focus and something that one of the first clinics in the state to be outside of the medical model. Um, and I just love the Drumlin scenery there. Um, and the last ice age was called the Wisconsin Ice Age here in the Midwest. And the melting of the ice is one of the problems with uh, climate change. So I feel this is a place to be. It's, it's, um, it's symbolic of what is wrong in the Anthropocene, the human era. And the other place I go to is here in Milwaukee County at Water Beach. It's this beautiful bluff uh, overlooking Lake Michigan, and they, they planted wildflowers on the side. So when I go there, I remind myself that uh, this is what my soul looks like if it were environment, but it looks different every day. Mm -hmm. It looks different through the seasons. The light is always changing, the air temperature, the scents of the flowers. So like the soul has a scent as well. So this is this, and then you look at everything, you have all these particulars for what your soul is and you see, well, it's not just this, it's, it's all interrelated. So that sense of everything being interrelated in a sacred way is what the Greeks call the cosmos and as opposed to a universe, the way Hillman talked about it. So by being in your place in nature, that's your grounding in reality, and then you relate it to your inner world, and that's how the inner and the outer are connected. And that is your purpose for visiting? I'm trying to understand what, why you visit these places daily. What is the purpose of that, and how can we all incorporate some uh, of that yeah. into our daily lives? Well, um, you, I don't have to, I visit it daily for a very practical reason, one very practical, aerobics. I walk up and down that ramp, I can't jog anymore. I jogged for 43 years um, because of hip problems. Um, but I walk up as fast as I can. There's a, there's a zigzag asphalt trail that goes from the top of the cliff to the side of the lake. So I get my aerobics for a half an hour. Um, and so I'm, I'm getting my physical body kept in shape. Um, it, but it's also an excuse to get, in, get out in nature. I think a lot of hunters, male hunters, they're there with their rifle because it's a masculine thing. I think it's really an excuse to get into nature. To get into nature. And, and is that part of this paradigm shift that you mentioned earlier that 
we've become so separated from nature. And what I think we don't realize is that we human beings are part of the environment. So we're always talking about environmental issues and environmental collapse and climate change as if it's something outside of us, but we're part of it. Right. And um, so what I uh, have done is I've developed uh, a field that I call Jungian eco-psychology. And it's um, um, uh, the name I give the field. I don't right. know if I'm a developer, but it I think it pretty well encompasses um, what I've done with Jungian psychology and this field called eco-psychology that began to emerge in the mid-90s. So I was doing that before there was a name for it. Uh, my wife and I did a Spirit in the Land, Spirit in Animals, Spirit in People conference in 1991, 1992, which was an attempt to integrate Jungian psychology, Native American spirituality, and science. And that's on my website, the program. Um, so uh, eco-psychology is a study of the human relationship with the environment with the idea that one of the many ideas is that we can, we're all capable of connecting much more deeply to the environment than we currently are. And one of the main premises in that is that a fundamental problem with our species is that for almost from the beginning, the way the Judeo-Christian heritage started, there's been this split with the environment and the nature religions. Um, and so, that, that we've split ourselves away from well, the nature religions. Well, at our spiritual core, when you think of it, when hum, a lot of a lot of Christians think of the, in, uh, the saying, uh, "Humans are made in God's Im in, in the image of God." Mm -hmm. Well, what about insects? Are they not in the image of God as well? And what about badgers and bears and fish and trees? As any indigenous person would see, so from the beginning, it's like. We're in the image of God, and God created this, so these are in some ways objects. And Hillman and Jung talked about that so, so nicely. But anyway, to get back to the idea of this disconnect from the environment, mm -hmm. um, uh, and the deep ecologist Arnie Nace of Norwegian talked about deep ecology. And to me, that's part of eco-psychology. And, the, and they call for the deepest possible analysis of our dysfunctional relationship with nature. And to me, there's nobody that can offer a deeper analysis than Jung because it's an archetypal analysis and it's analysis of the way our Western mythic and religious tradition has been in, in some ways a big factor in separating us from the environment. And what Jung, and a lot of people I don't think realize this, Jung being the this descendant of a long line of Swiss Protestant ministers on his mother's and his father's side, right. he saw as his archetypal purpose in life, if you will, was to revitalize Christianity. He thought Christianity had been a, become a dead myth, and he thought it had killed his father, who was a minister. And one of the dreams that he had that really fits into eco-psychology at this deep level is he woke up one night and there at the foot of his bed was a 
like a, a, a small Jesus. I don't know if Jesus was on the cross, but it was a green Jesus. And it was like in a sacred light. So it was an alchemical Jesus. So Jung came to realize, again, because of a dream, they led him into so many deep places. It was back in the 1920s after his long shamanic journey into the unconscious during the teens um, that the alchemist, uh, he saw them as the uh, uh, projecting. The alchemist started with early Christianity, went up to the beginning of science, and they were working with their chemical vessels and retorts. And they were seeing all these things happening, animals mating and all sorts of things happening. Um, and they described it as turning lead into gold or um, the, the philosopher's stone, many different ways. But Jung realized they were, it took him 10 years to realize they were speaking symbolically. And some of them realized they weren't literally trying to turn lead into gold. They were trying to take the rejected elements from our Western cultural tradition, which is mainly a Christian tradition, the things that Christianity had rejected and demonized, the feminine, the body, sexuality, and sensuality, they were trying to integrate that with Christianity. And of course, they had a practice in secret because um, starting with Constantine, uh, the first Christian Roman emperor, uh, the Christians had Constantine wanted one message for the whole empire. So there were many different Christian ideas about what was going on. So he wanted one message. So that was the Bible and everything else was heretical. So that just limited things considerably. But there are ways that, that oh anyways, to stay with alchemy then. So Jung realized that they were really the first modern depth psychologists. They were projecting the post-Christian unconscious into those vessels and retorts. And Jung was really trying to uh, kind of revitalize Christianity in some way. And Hillman critiqued Jung for being too much of the Western Christian tradition. Right. But it's a, it's a tradition that, that I can relate to, and, and it's what my next works are. And my, I've got two more books I gotta get out before I start developing whatever big projects uh, to really put this Jungian eco-psychology into some um, educational frameworks and and beyond that. So two more books in this series? Well, to, to complement what I've already written. One of them, to finish off this, um, is um, years ago I started having some ideas about, well, what would this look like, not in Jung's mind, but from my own experience. And the title I came up for the book and I gave a talk at Tom Lane's uh, Journey into Wholeness conferences that was in a, 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 a ongoing uh, working with uh, uh, integration of Christianity and Jungian psychology. Tom stopped doing that a few years ago, but uh, just a wonderful conference he had. So I gave a talk called The New Psychoanalytic Jesus. And there are ways you can use Jungian psychology, ideas from Winnicott, uh, in a very Christian way. And I use a lot of these con con uh, uh, concepts in my practice. So for example, when Jesus said, why are you so concerned about the speck of wood in your brother's eye, and you don't see the, notice the two by four in your own. 
that's a perfect example of what Jung talked about with the shadow. Right. You know, and one um, statement that I find a lot of my, my Christian or people that had grown up in a, a Christian home don't realize that Jung, uh, Jung Freudian slip, huh. Jungian slip, that Jesus said um, uh, is um, that one should have the eyes of a snake and the heart of a dove. I think he said it more the wisdom of a snake, but somehow my, my imagination came out the eyes of a right. snake. So what's that about? And it's related to the, the playfulness of the wise old man, okay. the childlike nature of a wise old man. So you have to always be, to be open to the world and ready to learn new things. But if you're out there in the world like so many of the New Agers are, and today is the second day of the 50th anniversary of Woodstock, one of the culminations of my Berkeley hippie years. Um, uh, so um, it's not all peace and love. And if you go out into the world like that, you're going to get chewed up or you're going to be incredi incredibly naive. That's where you got to have the eyes of a snake. You, you've got to be able to look at things and, and look at the shadow side and the good side and so on. One of the problems Jung realized with Christianity is that it creates a split in the Western psyche. It drives things to the extremes of good and evil, and that ultimately affects your political system. My way or the highway, and you can't run a democracy without my way or the highway mentality. So that's one area in our current political system, I think, Jungian psychology is incredibly valuable. How can you listen to somebody from the other side? And my dad, like I said, didn't have a, a didn't go beyond the eighth grade. And it was, you know, they, they were picking cottons with the African-Americans in, in the South and they were migrant workers. But he said, you can learn something from everybody. Yeah. You know? Um, and and that's that's one one thing that I always keep in mind. Yeah, and we should have that idea with everybody we talk to. Right. You know, somebody. I mean, I really am tremendously overeducated. You know, two PhDs and in two master's degrees well, and so I, I on. I wanted to ask you about that. That I find that very interesting. That you one of the first things you said is that neither of your parents went beyond a high school education, mm -hmm. right? Yet here you are with all of these degrees, and how did you get into Berkeley? That's not an easy school to get into. And then the Jung Institute in Zurich, that's not easy either. Well, uh, it's, uh, I listened to your um, uh, podcast with Jeffrey Keel, and he talked about how he as a scientist got into Jung, and it's like the, science, the psyche just <laughs> made him do it, if you will. Um, yeah, so getting back to the farm, so I decided by the eighth grade that if I was smart enough, I would want to go as far as I could in entomology. When you grow up on a farm and about the only people you know with an education uh, beside your teachers is the veterinarian, right. you, it's hard to imagine be, being a historian or somebody with a degree in the literature. You pretty much, I knew I didn't want to be a farmer, but I knew insects cause a lot of damage. 
They ate a lot of our food. They spread a lot of diseases. So I figured in a very practical way that there could be a career where I could make some money as an entomologist. But I also just was realized how fascinating insects are. Um, so all through high school, going to be a scientist. But then I took an aptitude test my senior year in high school. And it comes back, and these are the exact words that the woman used, that I had a tremendous potential in commercial art. And she showed me the back of a magazine with a Marlboro commercial. And neither one of my parents ever smoked. And I thought, that's such a dirty thing. And I read Vance Packard's book, The Hidden Persuaders, how he used advertising to get people to, to kill themselves by smoking cigarettes or you know, buying a sports car because you have some woman in a bikini selling it, you know? And I thought, this is disgusting. I knew exactly why they set the commercial up the way they did. Right, right, right. You know, so, but that was a hint. Because as I discovered years later, when I studied Hermes, Hermes is not only the god of psychology, he's the god of businessmen, he's the god of advertising. So, I, you know, I wander all over the place, but that's who I am. So the perfect example for the archetype of Hermes nowadays is the, I watch some commercial TV to see the commercials. Right. And so I watch the NBC Evening News to see what commercial TV says before I go to news hour. The perfect example of Hermes are the uh, uh, advertisements for medicine. All right? So how in the world, and this is where the ad money from the big pharmaceutical companies is going. They used to pay doctors to go out and lecture at these doctors' conventions uh, and promote these medicines and then send all their salesmen out to the doctor to give them these free samples, including Oxycontin, of course. Um, and uh, so now they're putting all their money in commercials and it's pure Hermes. So how can you sell something when you got to tell them during the commercial that you might feel suicidal, right. uh, you're going to be more vulnerable to uh, tuberculosis, um, it might dis destroy your immune system. Why would anybody want to take a drug with those risks? That's Hermes. The way you do it is you start off with a little story, a father, and he's going to take his son grand fishing with grandpa. Right. So you're drawn into the story. The music is going. There's a, they're out in nature. There's a scenery. And once you got them following the storyline and we're so visually oriented, then you say, well, you might want to kill yourself. You might want to kill somebody else. You might die. Your liver might fail and so on. So what is that? That's Hermes. Hermes can lead the way or lead the stray. But, but who are these people? creating this and what is their responsibility to being a decent human being? Well, that gets into a deeper question. Uh, again, Jung and eco-psychology. Um, we live in a consumer culture. 70% of our economics is driven by consumerism. If people weren't going out, see, we are being sold, they even um, now that we have neurobiology and everything, those ad people are right in there. What's the deepest level of the brain where we can hook somebody? 
and and they know something about addictive personalities and so on. So how can we? And they've even studied the drool factor in babies as a way to begin to, to hook kids in with uh, these cartoons and stuff they watch. That's how deep and insidious. So we are being told almost from day one that we can buy happiness. How did we get here? What's underneath all of this? Oh, I summarized that in uh, uh, Volume 1 of the Dairy Farmer's Guide. Volume 1, which is called Jung, Jung and Eco Psychology. And uh, so what I did in my writings uh, is, it's like a reader's digest of condensed books. My parents used to get that on the farm. And I, 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 I've strung together my Zurich type of training, which was very symbolic, um, and with the, the clinical knowledge that I've gained in Zurich and since then, uh, to develop the minimal storylines, and then I dumped a lot of stuff in the appendices as support, uh, and particularly in my most original uh, volume, Volume 3, Hermes, Eco-Psychology and Complexity Theory. So um, the, um, there's, uh, the, I summarized the evolution of that, of the economic system, uh, and that, that has to do with, um, well, I think Jeffrey Keel is going to be writing something about archetypes and um, the Western history. But the basics are that during the Black Plague, uh, there were so many deaths, and I don't know, two-thirds of the Europeans died or whatever. This Christian culture and have all these deaths. And that's when Thomas Berry said that Christian Christianity really went more into let's get out of this place, like the animals saying in the 60s. Let's just get up in the heaven. And started splitting from nature, had more this, this transcendent orientation. So then as science began to emerge, kind of the church uh, made a deal with the scientific realm. Okay, we'll do the spiritual realm, you can have nature. Right. Well, what do you know? Science turns out to be an incredibly powerful conceptual system. Apollo is just amazing. You know, instead of arguing as the Greeks realized how many teeth there were in a horse's mouth, open the darn horse's mouth and count the teeth. That's science, you know, that's pretty, pretty obvious. Um, so, but then, so then we had science came along and it's produced all this stuff. And then after World War II, there's a great series on BBC. My son, who got his degree at the University of Essex, which is this great uh, uh, university uh, system in England that Andrew Samuels, a Jungian analyst, uh, had a lot to do with setting up. And one of the things he had, they had to watch in his class was called Century of the Self, C-E-N-T-U-R-I a four-part BBC series on advertising. Freud's cousin Bernays came to America and helped set up advertising. And the last part of that, which is relevant polit politically to what we have now with all these people coming up from Guatemala, is in the 1950s, the Guatemalans elected a socialist governor. And United Fruit Company, with its banana plantations, was afraid it was going to be nationalized. So they hired Bernays or somebody connected with him to create a fear of communism. And they sent, they, uh, so one of the things the Guatemalans believe 
the, the Americans sent down a congressional delegation and there was a riot when they were down there. The Guatemalans think that the CIA or whatever had set that up yeah. to make it look bad. And then that's when this all this stuff about communism started coming into the country be, to protect the big corporations. Um, so, and, and then we've been fighting these banana republics ever since. And, and then there were these paramilitaries Guatemala had. And now, not only do they have a destroyed government, but because of the drought related to climate change, all these coffee plantations are failing. And then there's all these drug wars because of Americans' um, uh, cocaine habits and so on. So that's why we have all these uh, Guatemalans at the border and, 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 and. So you, the, every, there's nothing really simple. Anytime you yeah. have something that's simple, you should run. Anytime you have something that's simple, you should run. Yep. I agree. I agree. And so, if somebody thinks they figured out the human psyche, whoa, be careful. Be careful. Well. You had mentioned your clinic in Madison, mm -hmm. Wisconsin, and you said that it was outside of the medical model. What did you mean by that? Well, uh, a fellow named Alan Roberts uh, set this clinic up, I, oh, I think about 50 or 60 years ago, and he had worked with Carl Rogers at uh, Mendota State Hospital, uh, and Genlin, who did focusing, he was a member of, of our group before it became the Integral Psychology Center. And back then, when he set it up, the thought police, I call them, dominated the meta, uh, a psychological world, were the psychiatrists. Right. And eventually, the psychologists managed to get licensed and claim a place. And the last people to get licensed were master's level people. Okay. Um, so, Alan Roberts wanted to set up a clinic that didn't have that model. And Alan had a degree in chemistry, so he had this science background. But there was a cover story, I think 67 or 68, one of the Chicago Sunday newspapers about this psychologist who went into the Amazon, worked as a shamans, and that was Alan Roberts. So his office had some bow and arrows from some of the members that he probably was doing ayahuasca and all the stuff that we're beginning to study again because we have all these soldiers with PTSD and they're finding out what do you know? Some of these psychogenic psychotropics are, are the only thing that are going to help them, and so on. So Alan sets up this clinic, and then as it evolved through the years, um, a fellow came out from uh, California Institute of Integral Studies, uh -huh. which were, if I were starting over again, that's probably where I'd go. Yeah. It's a wonderful place where they have a lot of unions, a lot of in input. Started off as an institute to bring East and West together, religions together, and they soon realized psychology is going to be the avenue. Um, Arden Mulberg, really a brilliant guy from uh, Minnesota, um, good Midwestern guy, gets his degree there. He did his degree uh, on Rupert Sheldrake's morphogenic fields. So he joins the clinic in Madison because he saw a Jungian analyst, namely me, was there. And Arden just had this great mind with a business mind and this um, real good integration of spirituality and Jung and, and uh, EMDR and all that sort of stuff. And it's a rather unique clinic. It's, it's run by our group. And uh, we have a, a spiritual 
uh, orientation, but we, we can all work spiritually, but we don't really push that. Most people think, oh, it's a Christian thing, but Buddhism and there are all sorts of spiritualities. So everybody is able to work in that dimension. And, and we share the decision-making and uh, you can work as, you pay for your monthly rent that's based on what the overall expenses are and so on. So it's a, it's a, a psychological co-op. It's a psychological co-op and so you, it's a clinic and you see patients. Right, right. And you said it was outside of the medical model, meaning, what do you mean by that specifically? The medical model is such a trap. Yeah. Uh, the ultimate, I think they passed the ultimate development to that called psychopharmacology. And uh, there was a great article in the New Yorker magazine some years ago about that. Psychopharmacology is, is the idea that ultimately human beings are like a big chemical factory. Ultimately, you can, it's the ultimate materialism. You can reduce everything to biochemistry. So if, you can, if that's the idea, then if whatever problem you have, you can have some rather expensive pill to take care of it. And, and I just would like to uh, jump in here and say that was the field I studied in college mm. at John Carroll University. I studied psychopharmacology. Oh my. And then I went to work at University Hospitals of Cleveland. I worked for Case Western Reserve University's oh, medical school. Yeah. And, and I also took a bunch of psychotropic medication. So where I am today, I think is because I experienced all that mm. and the negative side of all of that. Mm -hmm. So I am very much a proponent of not taking that path. Yeah, and um, if you don't take that path and you're in this culture, then you, you've got a dilemma. Um, because um, what is going to be your container for being able to go into the dark side, into right. the depths, into the difficult stuff? There, there are a lot of people that come into therapy come into it because of abuse. Uh, of various forms. It can be emotional, psychological, sexual abuse, and so on. So it all feels very personal. Um, but what are the healing elements that you can bring to that? Yeah. And if you're in a consumer culture, and now in a culture that where your insurance coverage is like brief therapy, and we've had people interviewed to join our clinic in Madison that are part of these HMOs, which began to take over in Madison in the, in the 1980s. And now it's all HMOs, health maintenance organizations. Yeah. They hire their providers, and you have to go with one of their providers. And the, the statistics in Madison before the HMOs went into effect, about 12% of the health budget was for mental health. After the HMOs, 4%. Four, down to 4%. Down to 4%. So we had somebody interview with our group, one of the HMOs, and I could get into legal trouble if I mentioned which one. Okay. Um, and she said that she has to average five hours a client. Um, 
And if you go over, you can be dropped from the panel or you're publicly embarrassed. So if you, if you have somebody borderline or severe, or severe thing, uh, and you do 10, 15, that means you're gonna have to cut other people back to right, one or two hours, right, right. all right? Instant healing. Uh, that's the model. So there's a lot of good stuff, as uh, Jerome Bernstein mentioned, with yep. CBT. It's, 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 uh, it's good for what it is, but in and of itself, it's not gonna get to the paradigm shift yep. that we need. Uh, so CBT has a lot of good stuff. EMDR has a lot of good stuff. Arden Malberg was somebody who really got into it. Um, it's good for trauma. Uh, but the, the, the thing about it, and this gets, um, this gets a little personal, um, but for the, the huge things in your life when kind of the bottom falls out um, and you're overwhelmed with a disaster or trauma, uh, the one of the immediate things to do is to get a pill. But the example for me, the personal example for me and my Native American experiences is uh, my dad actually uh, committed suicide when he was 75 years old. And um, what had happened was, you asked before about um, how it was back in the 50s for somebody need treatment. Right. And my dad would get severely depressed. He got psychotic at one time. He thought that people were spying on us from the farm woodlot. That was back in the McCarthy era in the 50s. And Joe McCarthy was a senator from Wisconsin. He was a Democrat from the South, so he thought there was people spying on us. So our family was driving along all night long in our Henry J. Um, so, and what it, what had happened is um, my dad got really depressed a couple of decades ago. My mom called me up and we got him a psychiatrist and he got on Prozac and it just drove him nuts. It was like picking bugs off the wall got some other drug and it worked for several years and then it didn't work and then you're really in bad shape. So as the years went on and he got really bad again, mom calls me up, I help set up a psychiatrist and he's supposed to go see him on Monday. And the last thing he said to my mom, he said, I'd give anything not to go see that psychiatrist on Monday. And he went into the bedroom and shot himself in the head. Um, and then my parents weren't religious. I gave the eulogy. Um, I did everything I could. Um, and then two weeks later, there was a Sundance, a new Sundance. And this Sundance allowed the supporters of the Sundancers to be taken to the tree. And it's such an incredibly powerful experience to be at a Sundance. Such an incredibly powerful ritual in nature with natural things. And I thought, oh my God, Tomorrow morning, 7.30, exactly two weeks after my dad's suicide, could my dear friends uh, who were Sundancers, Fred Gustafson being one, he was a Lutheran minister, Jungian answer, endless Sundancer, they could take me to the tree at 7.30 because uh, after the opening round, the Sundancers are asleep, the supporters have all gone back for breakfast, 
And Fred and Karen took me to the tree. And it was just, it's one of the most amazing experiences in my life. I started off hugging the tree. And then Albert Whitehat, who was an advisor for uh, Dances with Wolves, and um, one of the, worked with the shaman, the holy man, um, who, who was um, um, one of the teachers for the Sundance, said that tree is like a, a person, like a woman, and you put uh, cotton, uh, big cotton, uh, colored uh, symbolic colors for cotton around the base of the tree. It's almost like a skirt, so I was hugging that. And then I went down to the base of the tree and, and just with my forehead on the ground, I just wept and wept. And it felt like such an incredibly rich experience. And I, I just felt so contained there in nature by that tree with my friends there and being such an avid supporter, dancing at every round on the side. Um, and it's, it's what the hexagram and the jing, the abyss, is about. And if you can fully go into the depth and the pain, that's the only way you can come out the other end eventually. But then there are so many false bottoms. And, I, and one of the sayings I have as a consequence of that is I think modern men and women are at a tremendous disadvantage to try to get through life without the benefit of a living ritual. Um, so I'm just eternally grateful to um, Fred and Karen for that, but also to the Native Americans on the Rosebud Reservation that let white people and not Indians dance. Mm, and there's yes. so much stuff now about appropriation, and they're legitimately so concerned about ripping off their culture. And a, a few years ago, there was... Um, um, article in the Milwaukee paper about one of the men in a Milwaukee suburb or adjoining county died, one of two people that died in an enormous uh, sweat lodge in Arizona, yes. 110 people in yes, a sweat lodge. This guy was doing some kind of a spiritual warrior thing for people and businessmen. I think he was charging him 10,000 bucks. And one of the things was a big sweat lodge. Uh, and that's exactly what the Native Americans are paranoid about. Right. They know that a lot of people in the white culture are desperate for some spiritual li life. Yes. Uh, and about the last thing they, they have, many of them, um, is their spiritual heritage. So I can fully appreciate them uh, not wanting to share their traditions. But the people that we worked with on the Rosebud, like people like Florentine Blue Thunder and Albert Whitehat and um, Hollow Horn Bear and especially Elmer Running. Uh, Elmer Running uh, was Catholic and he'd say there's only one God, but Elmer Running did the Weepy ceremony. And in the Weepy ceremony, you tell your holy man Shalman, he called himself an interpreter and he said, I don't have nearly the powers that my ancestors did because it's so dysfunctional. Yeah. On the reservations, one of the problems now is they have mass teen suicides. Uh, it's, it's one of the most depressed areas in the country. I think alcoholism rates 70% high drug addictions, high fetal alcohol syndrome. So here you're trying to be a holy man in that culture.
Um, so here's, and most of them have been alcoholics and, and they found their a spiritual heritage by getting back to their traditions. So Elmer running to do the weepy ceremonies, a problem or the tribe has a problem, an individual has a problem. You tell the holy man, they tie him up, they tie him up in a blanket, they turn the lights out, and sometime later they turn the lights on and there's the holy man sitting with the blanket and the ropes beside him and he has the answer. Elmer could do those ceremonies. Mm. And the first time I went out to the Sundance, um, uh, I got there late and we just about died on the way out there from an accident. Oh my goodness. Got there really late and Fred Gustafson come out, come on Dennis, we're about to start a, a ceremony. So when uh, they put you up on the hill and I was very fortunate to do a two day vision quest with Elmer running with a pipe. Um, when they bring you down from the hill, then uh, Elmer uh, uh, establishes, recreates his um, altar that he got from his vision quest when he became a holy man. And then he calls in the spirits and anything that's on the altar at that time is blessed. So the room is dark, crowded with people, this little hut, and Elmer starts to work with his rattle, and I see some vague, 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 like yellow-green sparks coming off. My scientific mind says, God, must be something rubbing against each other. Mm-hmm. And then I look across the room, and I'm sitting next to Fred, his wife is across the room, and I swear to God, in that same vague, vague, vague a light, there were two, I think it's called robohedrons. It's a, a, a six-sided, it's like you elongate a, hex, a hexagon. You elongate that so you have two long sides and, and points on each end. And then above that, twice the length of the first one was a re- repetition of that. What the heck? I don't think these Indians have anything hidden in the walls that they can turn on. So my Western scientific mind was just blown at that point. But uh, other synchronistic things like that have happened to me when I was doing my vision quest. At one point, um, I, I established a prayer round, and when I was going between two flags on my sacred site, I had the overwhelming sense that my left leg was the leg of what I know to be one of my spirit animals from some of the dreams I had in Switzerland. It just was that, yes, this is what it would feel like to be that animal, what its left leg would feel like. And then I've had other overwhelming physical experiences. So to me, it's just scratching the surface of what those these Native American cultures, and I'm sure all indigenous cultures have felt, what it's like to have a spirit animal. You can you literally embody that animal in some way. And I just think of how far we are from that. Um, and what is the purpose of that, of having a spirit animal? Oh, that's your guide. That's your medicine animal. And it, how do you find it? Well, uh, one big Jungian way is in your dreams. That's yeah. how I got, I've got uh, one, two, three, four spirit animals from my dreams. 
And another one years ago, Ingerman, uh, Sandra Ingerman, who uh, was trained by this fellow who developed a shamanism. I forget his name, but she did a shamanistic workshop in Madison. And I did that with um, uh, a guy who teaches at Lionel Corbett. Oh, yeah. Lionel Corbett, uh, great guy. And he's now at Pacifica. He trained at Chicago Institute. So I was in a, a workshop with him and his wife. And um, uh, Sandra is showing all these techniques. And, and one of the things she did was she had a rattle. And we're all sitting in a circle. And she goes from person to person. And she starts out on your right shoulder, goes over top of your head, and down down your left shoulder on the next person. So when it was my turn, when she got to the top of my head, at that moment, boom, I had this strong, distinct image of a bird. And then when I thought about that later, I thought, I've always admired this. And you may notice I'm not telling you what it is. Um, because I had the good fortune of doing a workshop with somebody from the ancient level of the Cheyenne religion. And uh, that was uncanny. Uh, this guy clearly was the wolf spirit, and he did some wolf sounds leading the sweat lodge. And I, it's like, is this a wolf or is it a guy? It was like Frampton. I think it was Frampton. He used to play the guitar. It's like, this is this a guitar? Is him speaking or what's he doing? You know? So when you're with those kind of people, you, you get a glimpse into another way of being in the world and a feeling of it. Um, so he said, uh, one of the people he was training, and the reason he came to Wisconsin, there was a white buffalo calf born on a white farmer's farm in Janesville. A lot of holy men came there, and he wanted to see my good friend Herman Bender, who had discovered some 5,000-year-old sacred sites in Wisconsin that had survived because these drumlins were, you didn't want to plow them, so there are stone arrangements that were not plowed uh, like Iowa and everything else because of the steep hillside. And those arrangements go back to sacred orientations 5,000 years ago. And Herman Bender had discovered what I call a drumlin uh, mandala in Campbellsport, Wisconsin. And Elm, uh, um, Ralph Red Fox had been told that the Cheyenne had a lost eastern center of the world. And he thinks that Herman had discovered that. So Ralph Red Fox is in Wisconsin to reactivate these sites, and he assembles this, this group. And in the ancient level of the Cheyenne religion, a woman was one of the main uh, 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 leaders. And uh, so in this group he has assembled, we do a sweat lodge uh, in one of the Wisconsin villages. And this guy had pictures of his spirit animal uh, all over the place. And Red Fox says, take those pictures down. He said, yeah. don't tell people what your spirit animal. They should be able to figure it out by oh, who you are. Yeah. Oh, I see. So that's why I don't say You don't what talk it about is. it. And, and so you, you use your spirit animal as a guide. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. And I, in the interest of time, I want to 
switch gears here. You had mentioned the I Ching. And I know that that is something you feel very strongly about. Um, you said, I believe, that if you were stranded on the proverbial desert island and could only have one book, it would be Richard Wilhelm's translation of the I Ching. Yep. And Jung is very connected to that. I believe he wrote the foreword to that book. Mm -hmm. So would you tell us why you have such an affinity for that book? Well, um... I didn't discover something until a few years ago. One of my few talks that was uh, Chicago Institute did record, the other sound recordings failed, was a talk I gave called Hexagrams and the Dreams of a Modern Man. And so I gave a talk about this case that I worked with a university professor who over his university career came to see me at four different times. And the last time was near the end of his career, and he really wanted to work on his anima. He was interested in the Jing from early in his life, interested in Jung and other other things. And uh, he had, I think he was on sabbatical that year and would ask for dreams. And he had this incredible series of dreams that followed a, a very rarely do you see something following such a sequence. and. It was six times during his dream cycle, he was either told to consult the Jing, he was given a hexagram in the Jing, or twice he remembered the fall of the coins once being done by the anima figure in his dreams for the hexagram. Um, so I was able to give a talk showing how the dream themes were related with the hexagrams that he got. So what is a hexagram? So a hexagram. Um, a hexagram is um, um, a combination of yang, which are solid lines, archetypal, masculine, firm, light, dry, or yin, broken lines, um, archetypal feminine, moist, uh, containing dark. So we have what how people would call it the yin and yang. The yin and yang. Okay. Yeah. The, and the, it the is solid a... ones are the yang, the okay. broken ones are the yin. So hexa means six, like hexapod is the order of insects, six feet. All right. So maybe that's why I like the James hexagrams. <laughs> right. um, there are only 64 ways you can combine solid and broken lines without repeating. 64 ways. 64 ways. But each of those six positions can have one of four types of lines. You can have a, a yang yin or a yang yan, or something driven to the extreme, an old yin or an old yan. So if you take a yang yin, for example, uh, receptive and dark and moist, and you drive it to the extreme, it can be so receptive it's passive or so dark it can even become like almost evil, or so moist it can be like flooding. If you drive the old yang to the extreme, instead of bright, it can become blinding. It can become so firm it becomes rigid and so on. So it's just this wonderful way of talking with two basic concepts, which is the most elemental thing consciousness has. Consciousness ultimately is about being able to distinguish one thing from another. So the minimal distinction you can make is between one and two. So 
Each position can have four possibilities. Yong yin, yong yang, yong, uh, old yang, old yin. Would, would you kind of give us a visual, since this is just audio, of what that would look like? Okay, so if you just draw out six solid lines, one on top of the other, um, those are all yang lines. Okay. And that's a hexagram called hexagram one, the creator. That's one. If you draw six broken lines out, they just take that solid line and just, <laughs> just uh, take, that, take that hexagram one and just erase a little column right down the middle of all those lines. You got hexagram so two. Six broken lines stacked on top of each that's, other. That's, that's hexagram two. That's the hexagram two, the receptive. Half the commentary in the book is on one and two. And the whole book then is, the rest of the book is a combination of yin and yang. So you can have one yang at the bottom and then uh, five yin above. And that's the turning point, a very important hexagram. Chinese saw the lines coming in from the bottom and then moving up the top. Um, so each of the hexagrams, each of the possible combinations mm -hmm. of which there are 64, mm -hmm are interpreted in this book, yep. right? And so who? What, what I'm trying to understand here is who came up with these interpretations? Yeah, okay, well, um, Bob, to finish off what the, the book is about, so if each line has a, a four possibilities, um, each, uh, those, those lines when they're older, the old yang, for example, is going to change into a young yin, its opposite. So it's a changing line. Called a changing line, yep. And so if you have a hexagram, let's go back to the one I mentioned, uh, the turning point. You got one yang on the bottom and five yin above. Let's say that yang on the bottom is an old yang. It's gonna change to its opposite, a young yin. That's, the, they're gonna give you a second hexagram, what, where you're gonna be at the future with regard to your question. So if that yang then changes into a yin, you're gonna have, that second hexagram is gonna be all yin. So there are actually 4,096 possible answers you can get. Um, so the Chinese, these great Chinese minds, this goes back to 1050 BC, 50 BC. Um, King Zhou, was imprisoned by the Shang dynasty. And ten, he was in prison, I think, for, for, for seven years. And prior to that time, they had trigrams. They had three lines. Okay. And with commentaries on that. And that went back to Chinese shamanism. Uh, the sh people would have questions. They would come to the shaman. And the shaman would, would scratch some images on a bone that's the, the beginning of the Chinese ideograms, the Chinese language from these things on the, what they're called oracle bones. Stick the bone in the fire and then read the cracks, or then later on stick a hot poker in a tortoise shell, read the cracks. Well, they, they had yin and yang then, and I don't know how they came up with three. Then King Wen doubled it to make a hexagram. Okay. And then his son, the Duke of Zhou, provided some of the first commentary for each of those lines. And then, through the centuries up until modern China, every major Chinese thinker, writer, philosopher has commented on it. It's been a basis like the Bible for Christianity. Well, now that's been suppressed for many reasons. But so at its core, and this is kind of one of my thoughts about it, 
and it's something I have to write up. And I, I talked to, I gave a talk at the Eighth International Conference on Jungian Psychology and Chinese Culture. I talked about eco psychology and related it to the I Ching. Um, and um, so, at its core, it's a it's a number system. Um, the easiest way to talk about it is uh, consulting the Jing by taking like three pennies and giving heads a value of three and tails a value of two. Okay. So you got your question in mind, and I do workshops telling people how to intelligently use this book because most people abuse it. And I show people how to use the ancient Yarrowstock method because it's more therapeutic. <clears throat> but this is on the description in my, on my website on use of the Jing in the analytic setting. But so you got your three pennies, you got your question, you toss them out. Let's say you get heads, heads, heads. You give heads a value of three, tails a value of two. So if you have heads, 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 three, 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 that's nine. So you can get six, seven, eight, or nine, and those are related to six lines. Um, six is the old yin, <clears throat> seven is young yang, um, eight is young yin, and nine is old yang. So you toss those coins out six times, you got six numbers, you draw out your six lines, and that tells you what answer to read in the book. Answer to read in the book. And there's also, I actually have something I bought years and years ago. It sticks. And it's, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. it's plastic. Yeah. They're six plastic sticks. Yeah. And they have four sides. Okay. And there is a, a unbroken line or a solid line. Mm -hmm. There is a solid line that's changing. Yep. There's a broken line. And there's a broken line that's changing. Mm -hmm. yep. So you cast out these six sticks and see how they fall mm -hmm. and then look up the answers in the book. Mm -hmm. And uh, something else interesting, you said that Confucius said mm -hmm. if he had 50 more years to live, right. he would spend it studying the I Ching. Yeah. Now, what was Jung's association with it? Why was he so interested in it? Well, Jung... Um, Jung um, you know, after his descent into the unconscious in those three and a half years when the Freudians and even a lot of Jungians say he went insane, Jung knew he was in the realm of the crazies, but he barely made it through with the help of Tony Wolf. And then when he got out, he, 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 that's when he, be, he spent the rest of his life, he said, trying to figure out what happened to him. So the first thing he looked at was the Kabbalah, and there was very little available at the time, and a lot more now, uh, Gnosticism. And, um, and then I think back in 1919, he got introduced to one of the translations of the I Ching. Mm -hmm. And that, that introduced him. And, and then in the, sometime in the 1920s, he got introduced to Richard Wilhelm who either was a Chinese Christian missionary or the son of a missionary who worked with one of the old Taoist masters to do a translation. Um, and, and Jung um, had some powerful dreams about the self, uh, and, uh, and, and one of them related to uh, a translation that uh, Richard Wilhelm sent him on the secret of the golden flower about Chinese alchemy, and Jung realized that was a connection between the East and West alchemy. So, um, so they became friends, and Jung used the Jing extensively, had a lot of conversations with Wilhelm, and then, so Wilhelm had this German translation, and 
Uh, the wife of a British psychoanalyst, Carrie Baines, translated it into English and asked Jung to do the foreword, which Jung wrote in English. He found yes. out that he could think better in certain areas in English than he did in German. His English got very good. He had, there was something archetypal about the English that fascinated Jung. Uh, so then the Germans had to translate it back into uh, German, and he gave an example. He asked the Jing about what it thought about being translated into English. And that's the example he used, yeah. and he speculated about what the worldview would be. So, um, I, after I gave that talk in Chicago, uh, it was a very difficult talk. I tried to cram too much in there, but it's all in there, but you have to watch it. It's available in the Chicago uh, podcast. And yes, stuff. and I will put a link to that on the website, speakingofyoga.com. It's pretty dense. Um, but one of the people, I think I even lost a lot of the union analysts, and one of the people that had come to several of the seminars said, Dennis, I think you should realize that you have a different level of connection with the Jing than even most Jungians. And I thought about that later on, and I thought, oh my God, I responded to the Jing the same way I did when I first discovered Jung. It was like, where has this book been all my life? I can't believe that I'd gotten all the way to almost becoming a bona fide PhD insect pathologist, entomologist, and never heard about Jung. And I felt the same way about the Jing. There's just something about it that, that I mean, I felt Jung could have written the book. Uh, so it made me realize that from the beginning, I, I have just had this deep, deep connection with the book, and I've been able to integrate it into um, um, uh, eco-psychology. And in my chapter uh, in Land, Weather, Seasons, Insects, Seasons on the Soul, I use four basic concepts from the Jing. And which volume is that in? That's in volume four, Land, Weather, Seasons, Insects, volume four, an okay. archetypal view. Um, there, when you do the Jarlstock method, it's a counting procedure where you count off four sticks at a time. And those four sticks are related to four basic concepts that Wilhelm calls uh, supreme, growth, furthering, and perseverance. A better translation is spring, growth, harvest, and trial, which you can relate to the seasons. To the seasons. And one of the reasons I think the Jing is so um, at home here in the Midwest is it was written like King Wen was part of that more continental part of the Chinese um, Chinese uh, geography. That's uh, it's um, the uh, oh the, the the city near the Terracotta Warriors. It's on the western oh, yes. end of China. That's more of a continental climate. Okay. And and we're in a, in the Midwest. We're in a continental right. climate. So I feel the Jing. Uh, especially with a farming background, there's so many ways you can relate it to the land. And you said that Jung believed that the purest form of the archetypes were numbers. Yeah. And I'd heard you say that, so I tweeted it as a quote, mm -hmm. and it 
got this huge reaction. Mm -hmm. So would you explain that a little bit? Yeah, well, uh, the way when Jung talked about archetypes, um, one of the ways he tried to illustrate um, what they meant and how they were givens, they were just uh, uh, part of nature, if you will, was numbers. And in the West, we think of numbers as quantities. Yeah. But we cut off from our West the Pythagoreans. For the Pythagoreans, numbers had sacred dimensions. So we had the Pythagorean theorem, which mm -hmm. I loved. Geometry was my favorite class. Yeah, me too. One of my favorite classes. Um, and I was so excited the first day of geometry class when they talked about a point, no existence. At two points, minimal line, no existence, just, you know, between this and there. Three points, a minimal plane, four points, minimal volume. Uh, whoa! Something happens when you go from the three to the four. You go from no This is going to be a heavy class. So it went downhill from there on. Yeah. But I never forgot the first day of geometry class. So when I made up my wedding ring, I made up I one that. of my eight symbols has a point in the middle. That's in honor of the first day of geometry oh. class. So, um, but anyway, so uh, so I was not told in my high school education, rural Wisconsin, uh, about the spiritual side of Pythagoras, and I didn't, of course, know about the. Newton's interest in alchemy. He wrote more about alchemy than he did about the Newtonian physics and so on. So, um, so Jung said numbers have a quality. So one, you have to say something about the unity and oneness. There's a parameter there. Two, something about a duality, about a two-ness. Three, something about, and so on. So there's a symbolic dimension for all the numbers. And Jung said, "There's, and that's like the archetypes. You have to say this about it. You, it has very distinct parameters. That's how he thought about archetypes. And then he went on to say, there's something really uncanny about numbers. Uh, said, where do they come from? Did we invent them or did we discover them? Mm. Uh, they're just kind of there. So these mathematicians come up with these things that have to be said. These equations are just so. Uh, and the world of physics came up with all this weird stuff. Things can go back and forward in time and so on and so on. And that's the only thing that describes quantum mechanics. Things can come in and out of existence. And in our way of being in the world in the West, he said, no, this can't be. But even Einstein couldn't believe in black holes. And and quantum mechanics, he said, even Einstein said, God doesn't play dice. He couldn't believe that stuff. But one of the great minds in quantum mechanics uh, got interested in Jung, namely uh, Wolfgang Pauli. And Jung used his dreams as the best example of alchemical symbolism in the dreams of a modern man. Uh, now it's published, but when I was training, it's known only people in Zurich knew those are Pauli's dreams. But Pauli got interested in Jung because he realized Jung going to the depths of the psyche at this totally subjective realm was in the same dimensions that the physicists were getting into going through the totally physical route. And that's why he went into Jungian analysis and Jung and Pauli used to talk. So, right. so these numbers, Jung said, they're cooked up 
They're discovered by these mathematicians, and then lo and behold, years later, oh, these are the, this, is a, this is how you describe the turbulence of gases. So there's this uncanny relationship between numbers and physical reality. That's part of it. So what you do when you consult the Jing, and I've, this is what I've got to write up for the, uh, the Chinese, is that it, numbers as appears for, the Jing is a binomial system. Uh, Leibniz, who discovered or invented, however you want to describe it, the binary code that the computers run on, mm -hmm. was bummed out when he found out the Chinese had scooped him about 2,000 years earlier. There's one arrangement of these hexagrams called the Fu Si arrangement, which is the binary code. And it was a cover story of the January 1974 Scientific American about the mathematics of the Yi Jing. And it, it describes this in a way as I, as a non-mathematician, read it only to say that I read it. I don't understand it. But as um, Arnie Mandel, who got into physics, into Jungian psychology from physics, um, said there's a lot of new, uh, physicists are interested in the I Ching. So what you do, say, going back to uh, stick with this uh, method of, of tossing coins, you, you're generating numbers. And what I think happened with the Chinese mind, and what I think is so incredibly profound and probably unique about this book of all the wisdom books, is that you have the archetype of number, and that's so abstract. How can you can work maybe up to 15, 20, 21, but 4,094? Right. I think what happened is the Chinese stumble across this, this, this uh, yin and yang thing, solid and broken, the one and the two, binary code, okay. and when you pile them on top of six on top of the other, and now you have the beginning of putting something that the imagination began, can begin to wrap its mind around. Well, you've got a one on the bottom, so bottom is, you connect, you know, our mind was symbolically connected with something lower or more fundamental or more primal and, 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 all these necessary statements. And then above it, you've got a two, a broken, something, re and, and, and then, so I think ultimately it, it challenged these, these Chinese great minds to, to try to, to put images with the numbers. So once you got, the, the yin and the yang and all these different combinations, then you can start doing things. When you got six lines, okay, things will come in from the bottom, and that's the beginning, and at the top, it's the maximum development, and, and the second from the top, well, and the top is like the sage, and the second is like the king, or you can also relate it to the father, and all these different associations you, you have to say about each of those lines, and and then when you see, well, if you have a, a in the fifth position, which is an odd number, that's a natural position for the masculine, but you got a yin line, so you can make comments about that. So just as to give you some, just a hint, which Wilhelm goes into the back, tries to explain structurally why the Chinese said what they did. Um, but ultimately, you start off with the archetype of number, that pure form that you have to make this statement about it, but then to get the imaginal 
something imaginal to work with and then comment on and think about and reflect on for 2,500 years like the Chinese have done. Yeah. This is the end product. That's the end product. That's that the book. end product. He's holding up the book. Yep. And how does synchronicity factor into this? Synchronicity. That's the other dimension. So we have this amazing book based on the archetype of number. And, and I met John Beebe, did a training weekend, my, one of my first training weekends when I finished up in Zurich. That was back in 83. And, and he's doing his thing on typology. And I find out he's really into the Jing. And I think his father was a, a missionary or something. And he lived in China or something. He'd been very instrumental setting up this Jungian psychology and Chinese culture. And by the way, the Chinese are training a lot of Jungian animals. Yes, they are. It's big time over yep. there, especially sand play therapy. And my personal connection is Heyong Singh. Um, and uh, Shen. Um, and that's only because the San Francisco Institute put money up to bring mm -hmm. people from other cultures, and they brought Heyong over, and this guy is into the Jing, and we have this deep connection. And, and I'm very honored to think that he respects my connection with the Jing. Oh, it's, nice. It, to me, it's like Lakota respecting right. our white participation in their ceremonies. Right. You know what I mean? So, and, and that's a total aside. To me, Jungian psychology is such a, it's a way archetypally where you can relate to like here Chinese culture and then over here Lakota. In a Chicago Institute, we're having people coming up from Mexico to train. Well, boy, you got another whole way that Christianity related to the indigenous people in Latin America versus what we did here in United States and Canada. So how archetypally see all those dimensions. So, um, so what you can do is you can put a question to the book. And like I said, my workshops, what I do is how do you intelligently use this book? If you don't use it properly, you mess things up. You ruin your connection. So you put a question to the book, something you've worked with very deeply and, um, uh, and you honestly want to know an answer and, and you toss your coins. You know, for example, it's a great, great for relationship, wisdom to guide me in my relationship with my wife. And then you generate this answer. You have all these numbers, which you convert to lines, which, and you got six of them. You got your hexagram. You got changing lines. First hexagram you read is where you are now, changing lines. You've changed them, and that turns into a second hexagram where you're going to be in the future. And the amazing thing is, as a scientist, I have to say it works. As a scientist, I honestly have to say I have no idea how it works. Okay. But as a scientist, I have to say just because I don't have a theoretical system for how I have some ideas about why. You know, these are things I want to write up yet. I don't want to. Right. I want to. But um, synchronicity. Is, is synchronicity, but what's a worldview to incorporate that? That's what I'm working on now. Okay. I've come up with some ideas. On, mm -hmm. on, on. Jung, Jung explained it one way in here, but I. I have some other distinct ideas about how that can be explained. So my, my final question to you is, because we've got to wrap up here, is is this synchronicity? Is this an example? Is the I Ching an example of synchronicity? Using it. Using it is. As an oh, for sure. And would you kind of describe how that is the case? How it is? Yeah. How is the I Ching, using the I Ching, an example oh, 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 of this sure, concept sure. of synchronicity. Well, synchronicity, uh, it means like a meaningful 
coincidences. And one of the like, colloquial ways is it's like improbable to the point of being miraculous. There are many, as far as we know, things may be a continuous synchronicity. Many people look at it that way. Having trained in Zurich and knowing a lot of Jungians, I think that word is used too lightly. Too lightly, Oh, you yes. called me up. I was thinking, oh, that's synchronicity. Well, it could be. It could be. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I have a very restricted use of it. But so inner and outer um, seem to connect. Um, Jung used several examples of that. I have many examples myself. Um, and um, but the a causality a cause right there's no well if, uh, um, in the academic world the universe um, the uh, Wisconsin Public Radio used to record some of the popular lectures and you on UW campus it was called University of the Air and I would listen to that when I was working on houses I did a lot of work on houses and uh, one of them was called Western Civilization, Political, Economic, and Social Development by Anderson. And two-thirds of the way through the course, I give this guy credit. He says there are some things that we all experience, but we don't talk about them because we have no framework. And then he proceeded to give a perfect example of synchronicity. He said, I was at a conference, um, and I was talking to one of my colleagues, and um, we decided we were going to do a paper together. They came back to Madison, put the proposal on the desk, and promptly forgot about it. And a year later, I'm rummaging through my desk, like a university prof's desk, and I come across this proposal, and I'm like, oh my God, I forgot about this. And at that moment, the phone rings, and there's my friend saying, hey, what about that proposal? And that's the example he gave. That's all he said about it and for the whole class. Um, but... So that's so. Here's synchronicity, inner and outer related. You got this psychological issue. You got this problem, this difficulty in your relationship with your wife. That's an intra-psychic thing. You do some totally random process physically. You're tossing coins. That's totally random. Right. And you get a meaningful answer to read from the book. So. I, I did my thesis in Zurich on synchronicity experiments with the I Ching and their relevance to the theory of evolution. You know, I'm sitting at a train station looking over somebody's hexagram, and I happen to have my book with me that day because I was working with one of my clients with the I Ching, and I'm looking this over, and I just, the most unique experience in my life, I had this overwhelming sense, just like when, it's like this, my left leg is this, like my spirit animal, it's like there's a the gene, the hexagrams in the gene, and the genetic code, and the theory of evolution. It's all one. And I had all these ideas just kept pouring out of my mind for a whole week. And one of the things I developed was a synchronicity experiment with the gene. That was my thesis that I had to write up on the airplane when I was awake for 24 hours, going back to take my final exams in wow. Zurich. Uh, but my advisor was so uh, impressed with my ideas, he didn't want them to send my thesis to the ATEHAS so somebody might scoop my ideas. Ooh. I tried to get them published when I got back, but I couldn't. But that's going to be in my last book on synchronicity. Great. Okay, good. So, um, but anyway, so, um, um, so I had to think about 
this could be just, just a great Chinese Rorschach test. Uh-huh. You, I've got a pretty good scientific mind. Mm-hmm. I've got a good mind for thinking up experiments. Uh, so you have to think of all your null hypotheses about why isn't isn't really a meaningful connection. Um, and when I came up with this experiment, um, I I was really shaken. I can still remember walking in my living room. We lived in Kilchberg my last year training in Zurich, directly across the lake from Kusnak, the Jung Institute, where we lived for five years. And I was walking in my living room, and I just felt like the, fl- the floor was falling off from under me. And I realized, wow, science is a religion. There's something very comforting about causality. Yes. It's like whatever happens, given enough time, enough research money, and enough Einsteins, we're going to figure it out and explain it scientifically. And what I realized is like, wow, I have set up an experiment, difficult, almost impossible to, to run, but theoretically it could be done. And that was really shaken. And since then, Rupert Sheldrake published a book called Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. And in the, the page 50, somewhere in the 50s pages, he gives a detailed description of a perfect, statistically proven experiment to show that this dog knew when his owner was coming home. Namely, um, they would a random number generator would tell the owner when to come home by uh, a taxi or something. So when did the dog go to the window seat to sit? When? When, after, not when the random number had been generated. Okay. Not when the phone was ringing. It was after his owner, who he's connected with, picked up the phone and then calls a taxi to give her a ride home because he's connected with the owner. So when in her psyche, she's going to come home, that's when the dog goes that's to sit the at the window. That's when the dog had the reaction. Yep. And they're filming his window seat 24-7. So what do you, ha- what do you say about that? Well, there, we have no way of describing at this point in time, there are people into nuclear physics and quantum mechanics like Sheldrake and all that. I have a nuclear physics friend who's now at the Einstein's lab in Princeton. He had been at Madison, looked at some of that stuff and didn't work for him. Um, Jung said that um, space and time are relative when it comes to the psyche. And when I've talked to some Native Americans, I mean, they're very, <laughs> they don't like to, they, I talked to someone and said, yeah, um, we can go into some places on the earth and come out some other places. Yeah, we've been on the moon and so on. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I try to keep an open mind. You keep an open mind. Either, unfortunately, new, uh, Jung gets linked with a lot of New Age stuff, partly because he coined the term, but there's so much flakiness there, and there's so much absence of the shadow, uh, and, and so much wild speculation. My scientific mind has always said, like, more than trust but verify, like Reagan with the Soviets and nuclear arms race. Um, um, and so, but my use of it personally and with my clients, it's like, boy, 
you, the answers are relevant. And when you're working people with people with dreams for a long time, and this, this talk I gave, Chicago Institute for Founders Day, it's like, wow, you, you have, as a scientist, you gotta see this time and time again. Um, and when I read Jung and, and I read that, and, and then finally, I, and Von Franz had written this, that he could pretty well tell what hexagrams his clients would get. A scientific mind would say, oh, you can set up an experiment for that. That's what I came up with in Zurich. And, and that's what Sheldrake, when I heard of his experiment with dogs, said, duh. You know, he gets by all this complex stuff with uh, human interactions and dogs are just, they're just archetypally trapped in being lovers and yes. connected to human beings, yes. you know, partly because we bred them that way for what, 15,000 years now and so on, but they're just something uncanny about, about dogs and humans. Um, and they're so connected and there's all these stories we've, we've read about them and every year there are new stories coming up. Art Funkhauser, a Zurich analyst, uh, lives in Switzerland, always sends me his dog stuff. Um, so there, to me, that's, it's, it's been proven statistically now, uh, but um, in my experiment, uh, I'll quickly go through my newer version, uh, and it came with a woman I was working with years ago. Uh, she's married, and she's got a boyfriend, and she's really conflicted. So she casts a comment on my relationship with my husband, comment on my relationship with the boyfriend. And uh, so the idea is that you have two analysts working with the client, and at the point before that she would consult the Jing uh, and ask about both of these, one of the analysts leaves the room, and then after the analyst has worked with the woman to, to help her understand her answer, then the answers are given to the one leaving the room, and he has to figure out what hexagram goes with what man. That's it. Used to be able to do that and put statistics on it. That's what I, the experiment I came up with in Zurich. I see. In simple form. Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you were hoping to talk about today before yes. they kick us out of this room? I was hoping to talk about how I got um, into Jungian psychology from insect pathology. Yes, I was going to ask you that. And that was my, my one phrase answer is by being in Berkeley in the late 60s. And uh, uh, that had to do with being 1A for the draft for the th third time, second time. Okay. And the third time was at the end of 1968. Oh. That was my first full year in, in Berkeley. And all I can say is that I didn't miss much. And I'll leave the rest of people's imagination. Okay. And I, I came from an egg fraternity with my barrel cream and crew cut. Did you? And um, the secretary for our little insect pathology division uh -huh. was doubling as a secretary for the Peace and Freedom Party, okay. which was a combination of the Black Panthers and the White Radicals. Oh my. And uh, so she took me under her wing and I ended up rooming with three potheads and I didn't know what marijuana was. Uh, and I came home one night, and there was our secretary ganged up with my roommates to get me stoned. Get you stoned? Get me stoned. Okay. And it took them three times to, uh, for them to do it, and then it's one of the most stoned times I've ever been. 
and I just got totally into that symbolic realm. And uh, I while you were stoned, you got into totally that into that realm. realm. Okay, and it's totally spiritual and so on. And was that because it was your first time? No, uh, subsequently, and I'd only get stoned on weekends, but this is actually on my website. Um, I would use marijuana just on a, on a Saturday night okay. or Friday night before going out to parties. Well, once I got into Jung and being stoned, uh, I was like, wow, I finally have a framework to be able to talk about this dimension. So I get stoned, go to parties, corner people, talk about Jung, come home, put my headphones on, listen to my favorite Pink Floyd, the only Pink Floyd albums I, that I like is Umaguma, that experimental phase. All the other stuff was too commercialized. So I listened to Umaguma and analyzed my dreams. Um, and I thought that once I, okay, so then uh, my wife got tired of hearing me talk about Jung, and she's the one who wrote to Zurich. And and found out that you don't have to have a background in psychology. You have to have a master's degree. So I had a right to Zurich and say, entomology? Master's degree in anything. So uh, uh, without ever thinking of being a therapist, with a pure science background all the way, uh, no therapy, I'm applying to train to be an analyst in Zurich because back in 1975, 19, I discovered you in 73, 74. I applied to Zurich, just had to have your life history and how you got interested in Jung. And uh, two letters of recommendation. One was from my Missouri Synod Lutheran minister, this admittedly Berkeley, uh, who knew about Jung because we insisted on having a talk back after the sermons, and I'd always talk about Jung. And the other was from an insect pathologist who never heard of Jung. But he had to make a decision at one point in his life between being a concert pianist or insect pathologist. He had a grand piano in his living room overlooking the Bay Area. And I'm not always sure I made the right decision. I'll write your letter. So, of course, I had a lot of doubt. Uh, but a month after I sent the application off, I had a dream there were a stack of applications at the Jung Institute. And my letter was at the top and had a red stamp, upper right-hand corner, accepted. So Dream Ego thinks there must be people better qualified than me. Looked at the application beneath that. This man had a PhD in psychology, uh, clinical training, and uh, I think Jungian supervision. He wasn't accepted. Look at the application beneath that, same story in the dream. That's the first time I thought, Maybe this is the way to go. And a month later, I get a letter, you're accepted. I tell that story to a Swiss analyst uh, who was, I call him the anima of the Jung Institute. He said, Dennis, if we'd have known you'd had that dream, you'd have been accepted right away. Right away. I told that story to the guy uh, in Chicago after I'd finished up in Zurich, uh, who was then the, like the CEO and he said, Dennis, you're really naive. So that's one of the profound differences between a Zurich Institute that would accept people back then. I called myself the token entomologist. There were city planners. Right. There were dentists. There were priests. Um, very few psychologists. 
Nowadays, if you want to train in Chicago, for example, you have to be a licensed therapist. I think you have to have 100 hours of Jungian analysis, and it's just expensive to train, and it takes about six years. Yeah. But, you know, as a consequence, me coming in from a pure ecological, biological background, that's how I see Jung, and that's how I talk about Jung. So to me, it's only natural for me to, pre to present about Jungian eco-psychology with my experiential background on Native American spirituality um, and some experience with the drug culture. What happened then is, is after I did uh, start analysis, I got accepted to say, okay, you got to start analysis. So uh, I thought, well, this will, be, this will go fast. I'll go into my analytic session. Saturday night, get stolen, analyze my dreams. Before my fourth session, I had a dream that a doctor and a nurse were involved in delivering a baby on a higher top floor of a high-rise hospital room. And the, the baby is born dead. Oh. And the doctor is telling the nurse that he thinks the reason the baby is born dead is because he was stoned during the delivery. Pretty clear message, high rise, getting stoned, getting high, uh -huh. birth, something new developing, you're starting analysis. I've right. often seen people starting analysis, or nine months later, women are dreaming about giving birth. Uh, so I thought, I'm only doing it on weekends. It's great spiritual, integrating young. So I asked the EJ. Okay. And I got one of the most static hexagrams in the book, standstill, hexagram 12. Three young lines, archetypal masculine, spiritual, heaven, natural direction is up on top. Three in lines, archetypal feminine, earth, natural direction down. Heaven and earth are out of relationship with each other, stand still. Pretty clear message. Uh -huh. Clearly metaphorically related to the dream. And not even any changing lines. I see. So with that, I said... And I think if you're talking about people with addictions, and I didn't think I was addicted psychologically in some way, uh, don't talk about giving it up forever. So I thought, four months. I'll go four months without it. Okay. I can do that. Uh, and that's how I was able to, to get away from it. And so eventually, this whole realm of the symbolic that I could only fully get into stone after training in Zurich, and especially that first generation Jung, where our main training was interpreting fairy tales, learning how to interpret fairy tales. Right. You learn how to think symbolically on the spot. One of the big final three exams was, big final three, psychiatry, picture interpretation, because most people didn't use it again, and fairy tales. They lock you in a room with a fairy tale you never saw before, all the symbol dictionaries you want, six hours later, typed interpretation, graded by three fairy tale experts. So you, you've got to just know that stuff. And that was my best training. That's how to work with dreams in an archetypal and symbolic level. And now, for example, in Chicago, in most Jungian institutes, you do a paper on archetypal material that you have somebody like me um, grades. Well, that's different and that's from. It? Well, a lot of other, other archetypal stuff too. But, and, and as a consequence, so many times I think, boy, if I was telling my client, I'm making up this up as I go along, I'm saying something that I know I've never read this before, but symbolically this is logical. Yes. You know? 
This it just makes symbolic sense. And you can't do that unless you... But then the amazing thing is that you find out that even anthropologists, forget about the psychologists, don't have a sense of the symbolic. They're working with people who live and ritually are living out the symbolic realm and they don't have a sense. And, and even the people in literature, the way they use the word symbol, that's not the way Jungians use it. Their idea of symbol, like words are symbols. No, words are not symbols. They're more like signs, like a stop sign means stop. You know, this oct octagonal shape that's red with the word stop means stop. In a Jungian sense, a symbol is something that is known and something that's unknown. And after, like the cross was a symbol of the unknown for a long time, but we so processed that stuff and talked about it, brought so much consciousness to it, um, that, that 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 symbolic sense can be largely lost, which can happen in religions as well. So, so I like to talk about this because legalizing marijuana is a big thing now. And I, years ago, I gave a talk at one of these New Age bookstores telling you exactly what I said. Right. And some guy jumped up, people mostly sitting against the wall. Some guy jumped up, young man, and he was, came up to me shouting right in my face. says, you're against the revolution, like legalizing marijuana. And he ran back and practically yanked his girlfriend up off the floor and they left. And I, I was a little concerned because I was sitting where they could see me from the street. I didn't know if right. we might come back. Right. You know, thank God this was before we've had quite as many guns as we do now. Um, and uh, but um, so I know, and I've worked with um, analysands that use marijuana, and. Uh, uh, so then to me, it's like, well, well, look at your dreams and maybe consult the gene. This is my story. This is how it was clear to me with my dreams and the gene that, and I used it sometimes after that. And I, I get so far out there and so manic -y that people just think I'm so weird. And when I did that in a Jungian context, they thought, well, Dennis, you got a problem here. So, so I don't wait, need to do this anymore. You're saying that it's it's up to the individual. It's an individual thing whether or not it's right for you. Yeah, I think it's great for and and the Ellen Roberts, the guy who set up the clinic in Madison, yes. I talked to you about, had been called Midwestern Psychological Services, now Integral Psychology Center. I talked to him about this, and he said, "Yeah, drugs, a pill, a material thing." in our culture, necessary probably to introduce people to that realm. It's a great introduction, but like Stan Groff uh, wrote about, uh, Groff um, worked with backward people in the Czech Republic in the 50s. Uh, he had done a lot of LSD and felt he went, of course, they're all, everybody tra had been trained Freudian, went to the Freudian level, then through the Jungian level, and he really sincerely believes that you can relive your birth experience and go back to the cosmic womb. Uh, he trained his staff to use LSD to work with backward clients in the Czech Republic. Um, and then, but then it was banned, so he's developed something called holotropic breathwork. I've done four of his workshops. I, I, it helped me a lot, but at some point I got stuck. Uh, but anyway, he wrote a book called Realms of the Human Unconscious. 
And he talked about, just like you can burn out your connection with the Jing if you don't use it well, he talked about, yes, it's great for introducing, but if you just keep getting high and it's just great sex and spiritual and so on, and don't use that to develop psychologically and spiritually, you're going to ruin your connection with it. And that's what Pink Floyd sang about Shine On You Crazy Diamond. It was about Sid Barrett, who was one of the founders and the leaders, but went off the deep end with LSD and drugs. And so many people in that generation, like we're talk, coming back to Woodstock, Janis Joplin and drugs, Jimi Hendrix and drugs, uh, Jim Morrison and drugs, you know, it can get you way out there and like Von Franz, and I think I think Kilman might have said too, it's a good way to ruin a good Jungian analysis. But to be to introduce you to it and hopefully not destroy the ego, which can be very hard to put back together, um, it's it may be necessary or vitally important for a lot of people. But then you got to ask um, then what you do, and then but you can easily relate that in a in a Jungian sense. You think about the people that want to become shamans or want to become a Tibetan monk. You got to prove yourself yeah. uh, that you're really serious and that you have the dedication and this is, this is who you are. You're going to have to do this. Just like, like Jeff Keel talked about. And like me with those dreams. It's like, for me, it's an avocation. I've never had that large a practice. You know, I can't do the CBT brief therapy stuff. I even went to an EMDR workshop so I could get more techniques. And it got to the point where I had to try my, and I couldn't stop me awning. Yeah. You know, so it's like, I can't do EMDR. If I can't do it myself, I'm not going to do it. So, but, but then, uh, weirdly enough, it's like, my God, unfortunately, my science background is perfectly suited for eco-psychology and the environmental issues. I'd like to again thank Dr. Merritt for his time that day. Please visit the website Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G dot com for more information on everything that was mentioned during our discussion. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, and now on iHeartRadio. With special thanks to the Hilton Milwaukee City Center, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung.